Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to chapter 5, where Jesus doesn't merely heal a leper, he cleanses him. And the difference between the two, between healing and cleansing, it really matters. So we're going to pick it up with verse 12, chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together to meditate on this, your word, this word about Jesus. And we pray that he would actually speak in this time to us, that we might see from him and hear from him, and that our hearts would be changed and moved. Whether we, we feel it or not, that doesn't matter. We trust that through this, this activity we're doing right now, meditating on your word, that you would grow us through the Spirit. We pray that the, that would be the case. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 12 indicates that while Jesus was still in the region of Galilee, and, and remember Galilee uh, was to the north of Jerusalem and was associated with the Gentiles. We read that a man full of leprosy came to him. Now, keep in mind from last week at this point, Jesus has called his first disciples, namely Peter, James, and John, and he has told them that he would make them fishers of men, or more literally, it's catchers of men. And generally speaking, that meant that his disciples and would-be apostles would be involved and evangelistic works that would, would follow in the same pattern of what Jesus did throughout his ministry. Uh, things like proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God as fulfilled in Jesus and healing people and casting out demons. And of course, we do see them do these very things in the book of Acts. But, but also keep in mind that this ministry would go to the Jews first, uh, something we see Jesus himself do, but would in turn extend also to the Gentile fish like we saw last week. So here we see Jesus going to the Jewish people first, or so rather they're coming to him, and we see Jesus cleansing a Jewish man who we read was full of leprosy. Now leprosy included a wide range of, of skin ailments that were largely contagious, but not all of them, and uh, rendered a person as not merely sick or diseased, but according, according to the law, they were ritually unclean. Here's what the law on leprosy from Leviticus 13, uh, verses 45 and 46 says. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Okay, uh, so while this clearly seems really strange to us, I mean, why would a skin disease and not 
say, other diseases be treated like this. Well, what's in view, among many other things, is how sin attacks uh, the whole person, both the body and the soul. So, for example, while we tend to think of cancer merely in, in clinical terms that renders it neither good uh, nor evil, it's really just a, a reality, a sad reality of life, the Bible sees disease as one of the effects of sin. Uh, in the biblical view, cancer is only a reality in a world tainted by sin, and it will have no part uh, in the life to come. It's why Jesus both proclaimed the forgiveness of sins and he healed bodies. It's why the gospel includes both the cross and the resurrection. So leprosy, though, it was a visible disease, an attack on the body that left the person ritually unclean. That is, it left the person in a symbolic state of death. That's what it was to be unclean. That meant that the leprous person was not allowed to set foot in the tabernacle or, at this point, the temple. And so to be excluded then from the tabernacle, like how Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, is to be exiled from God's presence, which is fundamentally what death is. So no matter how alive a person may feel in the here and now, apart from God, that person is a dead man, and eventually his body will catch up to the spiritual reality. And as Leviticus 13 indicates, the leper was also barred from life in the community of God's people and was forced to live outside the camp or the town. So the law indicates that the person was to take on uh, the disposition of a person in mourning with torn clothes and loosened hair, and I think there's a veil uh, probably involved covering their face, and the leper was to announce his uncleanness to anyone and everyone who came near him. So it's not merely the person's skin that announces death. It was his clothing and his hair and his voice and his proximity to other people that announced it. So a modern equivalent of this might be, this is kind of like this, it might be like how jailers working on, on death row will sometimes say, dead man walking, as they lead uh, a prisoner to his execution. And again, it must be said that this is not merely a hygienic law, though clearly there is a, a hygienic component to it. This is not merely about slowing or stopping the spread of disease. It's a symbol of spiritual death and how sin keeps us out of God's presence. So the person is barred from the tabernacle or the temple, not because his disease will pollute God, but just the opposite. God's holiness will destroy him. In turn, he's barred from the community of God's people because a sinful and defiled people, you know, sin, like, like a contagion, it spreads. Well, a defiled people cannot stand in God's presence. This is why, despite the tabernacle being in the middle of the Israelite camp, God's presence was still walled off from the people, and it was for their protection. Even within the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies and the holy place, they were off limits to all but the high priest and the priesthood. And even then, they were still on dangerous ground. See, God did not need protecting because you cannot defile God any more than a toxic waste dump can defile a raging inferno. 
No, it's sinful and defiled people that need to be protected from God's holiness. It's the toxic waste dump that should fear the fire, not the other way around. This is why when Isaiah, despite being a, a good and faithful prophet, which he was, was ushered immediately into the throne room of God, his reaction, his realization was that he was a sinful man in the presence of a holy God and he would surely die. And by the way, this is exactly the same realization Peter had with Jesus on the boat after the miraculous catch of fish last week. So, leprosy was a disease that defiled a person, both literally in their flesh, and that's the part we most easily understand with the disease itself, but also ritually and symbolically, and it rendered the person barred from God's presence and from among God's people. So it was walking death. It was walking death. Now notice the, the leper's disposition in verse 12. Uh, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So the leper didn't merely see Jesus as you might see any other human. Like Peter, he must have recognized Jesus, at least in some measure, as the Holy One of Israel. Because one, he falls on his face, akin to how Peter responded, which is a, a posture of worship. And then two, he doesn't announce to Jesus that he's unclean. He asked to be cleansed by him. According to Leviticus 13 and 14, it was part of a priest's job to inspect a leper's skin and, and render judgment on whether the disease was gone or not. So the priest himself could not make a person clean. He could only render judgment on whether a person was clean or not. And if the judgment was a good one, then the cleansed leper participated in a, a purification ritual on the eighth day that, that functioned like a form of circumcision, though obviously different than the kind he received as, as an infant. This circumcision involved his ear. If you want to go into more detail about that, I can explain it, but I'm just not going to take the time today. And included in the whole ritual was an atonement sacrifice. That's Leviticus 14. Just go read it for yourself. And there's a whole lot more there than what I have time to explain this morning. But it's worth asking, at least bare minimum, why the eighth day? Well, like we saw with circumcision of infant Jewish boys a few months ago, if you remember, that was around about uh, Christmas. The eighth day is the starting of a new week, right? Seven days. The next day, the eighth day, would be the starting of a new week. And it points forward throughout the law to new creation. So in other words, the cleansing of a leper, at least in some manner, looks forward to the washing of sin and the circumcision of the heart as promised in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, which was fulfilled in Jesus. So when the leper asks Jesus if he will make him clean, he's not merely asking him to be healed, like we, what we will see with the paralytic next week. And even then, Jesus doesn't merely heal him. He forgives sins. Nor is he asking Jesus to inspect him like a priest would do. No, he's, he's asking Jesus to do for him what God can only do. He wants to be restored to God and to God's people. He wants the redemption of new creation. Well, Jesus' disposition tells you everything you need to know about God. Jesus wants to cleanse this man. He wants 
to restore him to fellowship with God. And so he does, without hesitation. And what is often missed in the reading of the Old Testament, and really the Bible itself, is that God does not desire for any human to perish. He wants to redeem people from sin and death. So God wants to dwell. That's what's so often missed. God wants to dwell with his people, even when they are incapable of dwelling with him. So when you look at the Levitical law, or how the tabernacle was constructed with, with the people close, yet kept at a distance from God's presence, you need to see God's gracious provision so that people could be close to him without dying. The movement of the Bible as you follow it is God's movement closer and closer to humanity and the removal of their sin and the barriers that keep us at a distance from him. But compare the leper against what Jesus encountered in his hometown of Nazareth in the middle part of chapter 4. In that passage, if you'll remember, no one asked to be forgiven. No one asked to be cleansed. No, they asked for a sign or a miracle because they wanted Jesus to prove himself to them. That is, they put themselves in the place of judge over Jesus and wanted, well, they wanted more evidence before deciding on his claim to be the Messiah. They wanted to keep their distance from him. They wanted to remain aloof from him, not this leper. This leper is seen and heard enough and he wants to dwell with God. So what this man wanted, and his leprosy was a constant reminder of his actual spiritual condition, what he wanted was restoration to God. He wanted God. And Jesus gladly gives him that. Well, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus, as we read it, both confirms the Levitical code and he seemingly breaks it at the same time. So on the one hand, Jesus sends the leper to the priesthood in order to be inspected and in turn go through the ritual purification, including offering a sacrifice for his atonement in accordance with what is commanded there in, in, in Leviticus. On the other hand, Jesus seemingly breaks the Levitical code by touching the man. And the law specifically states that no one could touch a leper without becoming ritually unclean and defiled himself. Again, now part of this is clearly hygienic, but more so, more so it's symbolic. A holy people set apart by God cannot be defiled by sin and death and be in his presence. So this same thinking is, is included in other parts of the Levitical law, like how a person could not touch a dead body without becoming ritually defiled by it. And this is exactly the sort of thing Samson does, if you remember uh, all the crazy that, that Samson does uh, when he breaks his Nazarite vow by eating honey out of a lion carcass on the side of the road. Again, Samson, y'all, right? But it's also seen with things like nocturnal emissions or engaging with a woman on her menstrual cycle. You know, God does not have an ick factor here. He's not grossed out by these things. He's not squeamish about the human body. It's rather that such things symbolically point to the intermingling of death and life where there should only be life. 
So even with something that should be entirely marked by life, things like sex and childbirth, because of sin, those things are also tainted by death. So Jesus can walk right through the command not to touch a leper because unlike every other human, the Holy One of Israel makes other people clean. He brings life to people marked by death because you cannot defile Jesus. It's like the scene in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah recognizes that he is a man of unclean lips who dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now remember, God's people... They're supposed to be holy individuals living in the midst of a holy people living in community with God in their midst. And in response to Isaiah's confession of sin, a seraphim, which is literally a burning one, a servant of the throne room of God, picks up a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So we should see a burning fire before the throne of God, a symbol of his holiness like we see in Exodus 3 with the burning bush. And he touches Isaiah's mouth with the coal and said, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So God's holiness, as you see it throughout scripture, is either a fire of purification and atonement like we see with Isaiah, or it is a judgment on sin like we see, for example, with the prophet's of Baal on Mount Carmel or with the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So why does Isaiah say he is a man of unclean lips? Because from the heart a man speaks. And Isaiah recognizes that as a prophet, as a man who supposedly speaks on God's behalf, he is defiled by sin from the heart outward, just like the leper is. So unlike the priesthood, Jesus himself can actually atone for sin. Jesus alone can cleanse with a touch. His heart is pure and set on God. It's why all of the temptations he faced in the wilderness, if you remember back to that passage, were all squarely aimed at his desires and what he loves most. Jesus, unlike us, is not double-hearted. He's of singular focus. His heart is set wholly on God. So while it appears that Jesus is breaking the law, it's rather that he's the fulfillment of the law. He is the purification that the ritual of Leviticus 14 looked forward to. Now, (laughs) we aren't used to reading a short New Testament Testament passage about one of Jesus' miracles and then spending this much time uh, in Old Testament, especially Levitical law, but we're going to keep on going. Because without understanding what's going on here, at least with the law, at least a little bit of what Leviticus was doing, you're just not going to get a full sense of why this moment was important enough for Luke to include it in his gospel. You see, the Levitical laws are are sacramental in the sense that they found their meaning and their completion in the coming Christ. So animals do not atone for sin. A bull or a goat or a pigeon cannot substitute for a human. No, these these animals serve as signs and memorials that look forward to what would be accomplished by the Messiah. So only a human can atone for a human. It's why the penalty for murder in the Old Testament is rightly the cost of the life of the one who committed murder. Blood for blood. 
But even then, the murderer, by losing his life, is not atoning for his own life. He's merely paying the due penalty for his sin. For the Levitical law to be efficacious, that is, for it to have any real use, any effectiveness in the forgiveness of sins and purification of God's people, it had to look forward to and was completely dependent upon the one who would give his life for the sin of the world. So, in that sense, if you imagine it this way, the Levitical law was like checks. It was like checks being written to pay off present debt with the expectation that the debt would be paid off sometime in the far distant future by one who could make good on all those receipts. This is basically the claim the book of Hebrews makes. In Jesus, the law of God, including what we see as, as strange laws on purification and atonement, they all find their completion in Jesus. It's why Jesus reduced all the feasts and sacrifices in the Pentateuch to the one sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is the memorial, the sign and symbol of the one permanent and enduring sacrifice of Christ that he himself accomplished. So the entirety of the Levitical law finds its meaning and its value and its efficaciousness in Christ. It's why Jesus reduced circumcision and all these various, just read Leviticus, all these various purification rituals, including the one for lepers, to the one sacrament of baptism. But these issues of cleansing and purification are bigger or perhaps more cosmic than we tend to recognize. So consider you know, Peter in Acts 10 when in a vision God told him to, to take and eat what he had previously considered, according to God's own law, unclean animals. Peter refused and said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice in the vision says to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happens three times, and then Peter is completely puzzled by what he just encountered. And the vision, if you know the book of Acts, was teaching Peter not only that Gentiles, think back to the miraculous catch of fish from earlier in Luke 5, that they would be considered clean through Christ and part of the kingdom of God, but all of creation itself. All of creation itself. Jesus doesn't just redeem people, you see. He redeems the world. It's like what James Jordan argued. And when I initially heard this argument, I didn't think he was right, but over time and meditating on it, I've come to be convinced he, he probably is. So whereas in the Old Testament, people, when they came into contact with holy ground, like Moses at the burning bush or Joshua before the commander of the Lord's army, they had to do what? They had to remove their shoes. But in the New Testament, that's nowhere to be found. People do not have to remove their shoes. Why is that? Well, dust is associated with death. So from the dust of the ground you were, you were formed, and to dust you will return. That's the curse of death. So like we've seen with the leper, you, can, you cannot symbolically carry sin and death into God's presence and live. And like we've seen with Isaiah, we cannot be a people of unclean lips and at the same time stand in God's presence. 
This is why in Exodus 30, Aaron and the priests are instructed to wash their hands and their feet before ministering at the altar, offering sacrifices before the Lord. Otherwise, they will die. So they serve barefoot in the temple because it is holy ground. They are in the throne room of God. So when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he's very clear that he, this isn't merely cleaning nasty feet, though I'm sure they were, they were not good. He's washing their feet like the priesthood. And it's a symbol that he's permanently purifying them from sin and death, to which P Peter says, great, not just my feet, every last bit of me. Peter gets it. So before Christ, humanity was marked by the dust of death because the world itself had been laboring under the curse of sin. That's Romans 7. And in turn, humanity carried death symbolically on them everywhere they went. After Christ, we have been redeemed. We have been purified. We have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And so we enjoy God's presence as a living temple through the Spirit. But Jesus isn't just redeeming us. He's redeeming the world itself. After all, we wear shoes in church. I do not preach barefoot. I do not have a basin off to the side here uh, to richly wash my hands before coming into the pulpit or, or washing, washing my hands or feet when I, I serve uh, the Lord's Supper. Likewise, women are not ritually unclean, seven out of every 28 days. And lepers, which still exist, while they have a difficult disease, that disease does not cause a ritual separation from God. Lepers are welcome in God's presence. So because we have been cleansed by the one baptism in Jesus' blood, we have been circumcised through the Spirit and now enjoy permanent access to the throne room of God in a way that Isaiah did not enjoy. What's fascinating is that in this moment in Luke, the Levitical law is still in use even as the one who would fulfill it and bring total holistic cleansing is on the scene cleansing lepers. And Jesus commands the leopard, leper not to tell anyone other than the priest about what he had done for him. And, and I'll confess, it's difficult to know exactly why this is. But I, I think, you know, on the one hand, Jesus is openly preaching that the year of Jubilee had arrived and he's demonstrating the truth of that through miracles just like this one. And yet on the other hand, it's not quite time. It's not quite time for the fulfillment of all things in his death and resurrection. I think that's what he's after there. So there is still time left, not much, but there's still time left on the old covenant, on the old wineskins, before it becomes obsolete in Jesus in the very growing future. Now, to finish off the passage, we read in, in verse 15 that the report about Jesus was growing and news about Jesus was starting to make inroads to what I assume would be the southern part of Judea, to Jerusalem and places like that. And so more and more people came to him, both to hear his word and to be healed. And Luke tells us that despite this, which is what Jesus wants, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places in order to pray. And like he did in Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives at the end of his ministry, Jesus regularly pursued his father in prayer. And the word of God 
The Logos lived in communion with the Father and purposely sought him out in prayer. And so while I, I have, I think, a reasonably good grasp on the Bible, though there's, there's not a week that goes by, I don't learn something new and in turn feel like I'm completely ignorant at the same time. Prayer is, is something I struggle with, even as I have no problem saying I pray every single day. I pray every single day. And it's not the issue of how to pray. It's not the issue of how to pray. Prayer is actually not complicated. Simply follow the pattern of the Lord's prayer and build upon it. Or read and pray the Psalms. That's part of the reason they're there. I mean, and as Isaiah showed, simple prayers can be very effective prayers. So it's not the how of prayer that is hard. And I think sometimes when people are, are really wanting to learn the hows of prayer, that's a way of perhaps pushing off the actual activity of prayer. The how of prayer is not hard. For me, and I don't want to speak for you, but for me, it's the act of pursuing God in this specific God-commanded way that's hard. See, prayer assumes a disposition of submission and dependence. The very act of praying announces that I belong to another and is a practice and habit that, that continually reinforces the truth that uh, in this God, I have my life and breath and my meaning. So my assumption is that if you are like me, and maybe you're not, and maybe prayer is not difficult for you. I've known lots of people like that. And praise God that you, that you are that way. But if you are like me, perhaps you resist prayer, not because the technical how-to is mystifying, but because God is God. And I am not God. And I don't like submitting my life to him in the ways that he has given to his people for our good. So, for example, writing a sermon is so much easier than prayer for me. It's so much easier. See, I like to believe that I am in control and I like to think of myself as capable and righteous or at the very least that I'm better than that other guy and we all know about him. I like to believe I, I provided for myself. I like to believe I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul, even as I know the truth of such things, and that I'm fooling myself when I think them. So we should take note, I think, of, of the leper who held no such illusions. Everything about his life announced his death. Everything. Even his own voice announced his death. And in turn, he longed to be restored to the presence of God and his people. That's what he wanted. When he asks for cleansing, he's asking, please give me God. That's what he wants. Well, we have been given a no-holds-barred access to the Father through Christ in the Spirit in which we enter the throne room of God with clean lips and a circumcised heart. Through Jesus, we can go boldly to the throne of God in a way that Isaiah, at least initially, could not do. So let's quit resisting this gift. Let's fight against it. Let's quit resisting this gift and this blessing, this privilege. And like our Lord and Savior and our friend, Jesus, taught us by his own example, let's seek God, our Father, in prayer. Let's make our gift, let's make our treasure, like the leper, be God himself. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it's it's easy for me to pray in a sermon. It's much more difficult to pray in the early morning or the late evening or when things are hard or when I am full of myself or when 
things seem to be going good or I am full on in the Lord's work. Oh, the irony. Lord, I pray for me and I pray for everyone here that we would not resist this gift you've given, that we would not resist you, and that we would respond to those leanings and urges we sometimes have to turn to you in even very simple prayers. You're not looking for complexity. You're not looking for loftiness. You're looking for worshipers in spirit and truth. Thank you for calling us to that wonderful privilege and that gift. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.